Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Enby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. So all being well, when you're listening to this pod, I'll be away on a backpacking trip around Vietnam with Laura. I'm sure absolutely nothing will go wrong. But you never know. It'd be creepy if it had, and this is the last time you hear my voice. But I'm not going to take the opportunity to make this my last one in Testament. That is something that's been on my to-do list since early 2014. It would help if I had anything to leave. We'll ignore my house in Copey and Ashfield. It's possible to spend more money on a restaurant than that thing's worth. And I have no dependence. it's not like I'll be screwing anyone out of anything. It just means somebody, and given that I'm travelling with Laura, that somebody would be my VA, will have to do some awkward admin. If you find my body, leave it to medical science. Other than that, have a ball. But I'm sure everything is going to be alright. But as such, it means I'm recording this podcast in advance. Quite well in advance, as it happens. So that also means I don't have any housekeeping to talk about. Because I can't predict the future. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Obviously, there's a whole debate about free will and predestination, but I'm not a philosopher. I mean, clearly I'd relish the lifestyle, but possibly not the salary. Anyway, given that I'm absent in Southeast Asia, it makes sense to do a podcast on my previous backpacking trip to Southeast Asia back in early 2012. A long time ago, but it was quite a significant trip. Although two full years before the creation of my barefoot backpacker identity, I think this was very much the moment where I realised that I could do the travel thing and that it wasn't beyond my comfort zone. Indeed, a few years afterwards, the story of my first night in Laos was the subject of a vignette I wrote for a competition for Prad Guides, which won and ended up in a published anthology. It was called Rome Alone and was full of tales about solo travel. I guess I don't make enough of the fact I'm technically a published author. So there we go. It's important to talk a bit about the background to this trip, because life was very different back then. Although I always had an interest in travel, as you know, it wasn't something I'd really done since my abortive trip around Italy ten years previously. At least not so far out of my comfort zone. I'd travelled a lot around the USA in the intervening years, but over half of this was because I'd been meeting net pals and intimate partners. Hello Dana, you rock. So even if I did travel solo, it was often to places where I already knew people. And even if it wasn't, it's not like the USA is conceptually different enough from the UK for even a solo introverted traveller to get anxious about. I'd been to Italy again in the interim, but that was with my friend Sarah, and my anxieties are very much tempered if I'm travelling with someone else, especially someone with a force of personality like her. I don't know if she listens to my pod. Half the time I barely know she's still alive. Kirkby and Ashfield does have that effect on people. As an aside, that's one of my very few travel regrets. It was 2010, and she's very into ancient history. And by ancient, I mean Julius Caesar. Bit too recent, babe. But we chose Italy because she only had a week and we sadly decided Syria would have required more than that. But it's all right, you'd go back in the future, because it's not like anything would happen there, right? Anyway, I was hankering after some kind of adventure, and if you've ever been to Cape Ashfield, you'll understand why I was keen to not be in that place. I was in a better situation too, after a couple of years of financial mismanagement had led to an IVA debt repayment plan, which was coming to an end, so it felt like it was a good time to celebrate. 
In addition, at work I had about 24 days holiday to book off and no plans to use them, and the deadline for taking them was looming. At the time, my holiday year ended at the end of March, and I could only carry over five days to the next holiday year, otherwise I'd lose them. But what to do? In discussions with a couple of travel-oriented friends, the suggestion of Southeast Asia came up. Now, I'd been to China twice, but the area to the south had only ever come across by meeting people who'd been or lived there, and from some recent history. It wasn't a place I knew a great deal about outside of war and genocide, which, I mean, that's certainly why I go to places, but I'm not your standard travel blogger. Not that I would have used the term then, although clearly I was, given that I blogged about the trip in real time. The reason the region came up was because my friends had said, if you want somewhere cultural, historical, interesting, cheap and easy, in the sense of not as hasslesome to get around, then Southeast Asia is a shoe-in. And to be honest, now that I've been that way a few times now, I'd agree, they were right. And certainly for years on travel Twitter, when asked, where would you suggest for a first backpacking trip? I'd always say, apart from somewhere very similar to home, Southeast Asia is the place to go, for those reasons. Um, but with regard to this specific trip, without any future knowledge. So I went out and bought a guidebook. The Lonely Planet Southeast Asia on a shoestring book. And I read it. Thoroughly. For maybe a week. Obviously, when faced with that much information, you want to do all of the things. But I only had three weeks. And my workplace even pulled faces at that. So I had to be sensible about things. I ended up thinking a trip covering Laos and Cambodia would be in order. Laos because it read like the sort of country someone like me would relish. And Cambodia because, well, dark history. That Angkor Wat existed hadn't even occurred to me, and many of my original routing plans didn't acknowledge its existence, which tells you all you need to know about my priorities. I figured Vietnam probably needed a dedicated holiday on its own, but I never got around to doing that. I didn't know it was going to take me 11 years to go there, but hey-ho. As for planning, well, I fleshed out about 12 different possible itineraries based on going to different places in a different order. But they weren't anything committal, they were merely just theoretical possibilities based on what I could gather about bus times, etc. It meant that at any point I always knew what my onward possibilities were, despite not booking anything until I got there, thus giving me maximum flexibility and the knowledge that, while I wouldn't see everything on any of the routes, they'd all allow me to maximise my adventure. Some of them have spent more time in northern Lao, some of them avoided the area entirely. Some of them missed out the temples of Angkor, a couple went past Si Phan Don and the waterfalls at Pha Feng, and at least one took me to the Cambodian coast. As it happens, the route I took ended up being none of my proposed itineraries, obviously, but laying them all out made it that much easier. Many people would have booked everything in advance. I found it hard to travel with people like that. That's a subtweet, yes. As I say, the adventure took place two years before the birth of the Burford Backpacker as a dedicated travel blog identity, but as you already know, I'd been writing travel diaries for over a decade prior to this. It'll come as no surprise at all to learn that, you know, therefore I created an online daily blog for my trip that my friends, family and work colleagues could all follow. It was on LiveJournal, of all of the places, as well as my personal website. It still is on my personal website. Not that you can really access that at the moment while I figure out what to do with it. So this podcast episode is, like I've done previously, my going through my diary as written, with subsequent explanatory notes. When formulating this pod, I noticed the word count of the original travel blog was around 28,000 words, but then I also divided it originally into two easy sections halfway. In addition, my trip ended with a couple of days in Dubai with my step-cousin, who lives there. That woman's minted, I tell you, given her job and her salary and her lifestyle. I don't know if she listens to this pod, because why should she? She's probably got something more interesting to do. Though if you need to find anywhere in Dubai to get some lager and watch the rugby, she is your best contact. My first couple of posts were about my journey to Kuala Lumpur, which, 
Reading through it, it's interesting to note this was the first long-haul flight that wasn't on a dodgy American airline for seven years, so everything felt quite new and exciting. And it must be said that even now I'd consider Emirates one of the best airlines I've flown on. But what I was actually writing was partly about my pre-trip night in Sheffield, and mostly about the fact that on the majority of the two flights, Manchester to Kuala Lumpur with a change in Dubai, was spent listening to the entirety of the UK number one hits to that point, and watching a 1960s comedy movie called The Wrong Box, which, and I noted this at the time, obviously had Michael Caine in it. So let's start with my arrival in Kuala Lumpur. The majority of this was titled Where the Sidewalk Ends on the original blog, because along with the previous day titles of And It Looks Like We Might Have Made It and Abort Retry Fail, very much suggest I have no originality and use songs and poems for inspiration. The transfers were all pretty easy too. Easy to pay for and find the coach to the city centre, which may well have had the departure time, but it felt very much like it goes when it's full. And I was the seventh person on a coach of about 45 seats. Still, ooh, aircon. Easy to get to the Kuala Lumpur Metro, but the one stop to the nearest stop to the guest house, and easy to find the guest house. So, and I passed over it at the time, barely giving it a mention, but I think this, right here, is the most fundamental incident in my entire travelling life, and one of the three seminal moments in the formation of the Barefoot Backpacker. The other two were within a year of this, and both involved backpacker hostels. The coach from the airport to the city centre. It's only a small thing in the great cosmic scheme of things, and it's also an everyday thing, but remember, I'm someone very socially anxious, who despite their adventures, isn't very comfortable in new surroundings, where I don't know what to do or how to do it, especially where foreign languages are concerned. I am the sort of person who needs to research in advance how to leave an airport, and get to the city centre, in terms of where do I catch the connection, how do I pay for it, and what do I need to be aware of. And that I managed to get out of the airport onto a bus going close to the centre of the city and then subsequently negotiate an urban transport network I'd never been to without any hesitation, deviation or repetition, all the while fully aware that I'm not knowledgeable about the language or the money or anything else, that was a huge win for me and an early proof that I could do the travel thing and that it was right for me. The very first picture I took on this trip was of my bus ticket from the airport because even at the time I knew this was a moment. And it continued. Because I didn't fancy doing anything too strenuous, I then had a wander through the huge central market that's a couple of streets away. It's mostly a two-storey indoor thing, but there's a street of stalls outside. Lots of stalls. Bought myself a fruity drink, pink, that's all I know, from one, a collection of fruit from another, and sat down in the food court area to have a lele peignette, smashed fried catfish with rice and stuff. I chose the spicy option. Apparently it's a genuine Indonesian dish. And Indonesia is not very far away, just over the water in fact. Temperature today, about 30 degrees Celsius, and it definitely feels it. It's similar to how I felt in Hong Kong, but without the Chinese restaurant smell. Hmm, aircon. It seems strange talking about it, given that this is exactly the sort of thing that's both completely natural and almost every day for a travel blogger, but at the time I really did feel I was doing something that was beyond my comfort zone. Of course, we all have to start somewhere, and if you've never really done something before, it's going to feel strange. Kuala Lumpur. Like my friend John P., it is big and ugly. He never did comment on that. After all, no one in their right mind puts a motorway through the centre of a large city. We tried it in the UK. Glasgow and Leeds spring to mind. Manchester has an abortive attempt, but it, like London and Liverpool, was scheduled to have many more. But the political will to do so died in the 1970s. Those cities could have been very different. Your mileage may vary on if they'd have been better or worse, but one day I'll do a pod on Birmingham, a city that built a huge inner ring road around the very centre, and then 40 years later literally completely removed most of it. Anyway, Kuala Lumpur is not an easily walkable city, as I explained at the time. It's also exceptionally humid, as two showers and several clothes will testify to. 
Also note that due to its preference for concrete flyovers and road bridges, and building works on the edge of roads, it's quite a difficult city to walk around, as often there won't necessarily be a route between the two points that either doesn't involve a large detour to avoid roads without pavements, including side roads that go into bridges, or crossing four lanes each way of rather busy traffic. I decided not to get up early to visit Malacca, as I had been planning to, but rather spend the day in Kuala Lumpur instead, and see if it had anything to offer. What it offered, at first, was rain. Not a thunderstorm, but a reasonably heavy downpour, British style. This led to the dilemma, coat for dry and sweatiness, or no coat for wet and comfortness? I went for the latter. However, in fine noob stakes, I didn't realise the effect of rain on newly applied suntan lotion. I spent much of the day with white streaks on my trousers, caused where I'd laid my arms on them when I was sitting down. In the rain, I walked past the old railway station, pretty architecture, and through the maze of roads to the west that lead up to the National Monument. This is partly a dedication to Malaysia, and partly a war memorial, well, two in fact, the standard mania type, and then, surrounded by water, a sculpture of a series of soldiers in varying states of battle, including dead. It's quite high up, so you get good views of Kuala Lumpur from it. Well, you would do if there weren't so many trees in the way. Some of these trees belong to the huge lake gardens, a myriad of pathways through a large botanical gardens, and eventually hitting a rather large lake. Between there and the monument is also the National Planetarium, closed Mondays. By the time I'd reached the gardens, the rain had pretty much eased off, which made walking through them very pleasant. The final destination in the morning venture was the National Mosque, a rather large marbled building that's open to tourists and visitors at certain times of the day. Luckily, I managed to catch them before they closed for lunchtime prayers. Obviously, I couldn't go in the actual prayer room, but you can see it from outside, and it's pretty large. And it's pretty and large. I ended up chatting to one of the guides there, who I'm certain was trying to convert me to Islam. Back to the hotel then for a quick shower and rest before setting off again. I am not an old coward. Apparently, this was a reference to the song Mad Dogs and Englishmen, who are alleged to go out in the midday sun. First destination was another indoor market store place, Petaling Street, where one can buy all manner of tat. Tempted to change some money and buy a little wristwatch for 35 ringgit, or a 4.8 ringgit to the pound, but resisted. I did, however, buy a length of papaya for 120 ringgit. I needed the fruitage. My notes do indeed say length of papaya. I'm assuming it was long and thin, but I have genuinely no idea. Then had a wander up to Merdeka Square, a large area commemorating independence in 1957. Much of it is grass. It used to be, in fact, a cricket pitch, and if you wander over to it, you'll notice the wicket is still covered. I was wondering earlier in the day quite whether Malaysia and Singapore had ever had a decent cricket team. They don't, or at least both Malaysia and Singapore are, in the men's one-day game anyway, low third-tier nations, about the same standard as Kenya, Italy and Vanuatu. In the T20 game, Malaysia have played 70 and won 41, according to the Wikipedia stats. Singapore have won 14 out of 42. Neither qualified for even the semi-finals of the Asia qualifiers for the 2023 T20 World Cup, though Malaysia did at least win one game. Against Singapore. Malaysia are ranked 25th, below Jersey and above Q8. Singapore are 36th, just below Germany and Spain, and just above Guernsey. My research suggests that in May 2023, Malaysia lost a T20 match to that hotbed of international cricket, uh, Cambodia. And today I learned that Cambodia had a competing international cricket team. Anyway. Had a slow wander back to the hotel for another rest, mm, aircon, before heading out one final time, this time on a long walk over to the eastern side of the city centre to explore the Golden Triangle area. This was a bit more um, touristy, complete with Starbucks, KFC, big hotels, and lots of people offering legitimate massage services. Where my guest house is in Chinatown, Little India, lots of street stalls, markets, and backpackers, 
no tourists. This was during rush hour, so I merely crossed the road when the traffic wasn't moving, which was quite often, in fact. I walked all the way up to where the Petronas Towers are. Closed Mondays, for the record. But I already knew that. The trouble with them is that they're just two large towers surrounded by other large towers, so in a sense you don't really notice them. I walked back, had another shower, grabbed some food at the central market again, nasi goreng with paprika, another Indian dish, quite spicy with ginger, chilli and lemongrass, jolly yumness, before crashing at the hotel. Have an early start tomorrow. Flight leaves at 7.35am, so probably need to be up at 4.15. Joy. One thing to mention on this trip, despite the cost, or I guess because of the cost, I didn't stay in any backpacker hostel dorms. Everywhere I stayed was a private room in a hotel or a room in a guest house. And this was for two reasons. Firstly, at this point in my travel life, I was still very much focused on individuality and didn't like the idea of sharing my personal space. I still had issues on overnight transport, never mind bedrooms. Secondly, the price of private rooms was so low and I had a full-time job, so there seemed little financial benefit in paying for a dorm. You know, when I could get my own room for less than £10 a night, the savings of being in a dorm didn't feel like they were worth it for the personal and mental health reasons. Europe would be a different matter. That's a tale for a future pod. Day three, La Buddha Affair. Continuing the song title theme, and yeah, that's a song by the French band Indochine, so quite apt on more than one level. Things I have learnt today. One, I worry too much. Two, I am obsessed with time, for no long-term reason. It was ever thus, apparently. One of the most beautiful sights in the world is going through the countryside on a dark morning and finding the way lit up by impressive lightning strikes in the distance. Doubly so when all around you is a cloudless sky. Yeah, I made the coach. Worrying too much about catching it kept me awake all night. It happens to me quite often, in fact, when I have to be up stupidly early. I end up not sleeping at all despite trying to. Mostly occurs the day before I need to do something important. Today was exacerbated by not having a guaranteed alarm clock, but in the event I needn't have worried about that either. Went from bed to out the door in about four minutes, quickly caught a passing taxi, 4am, yay for city life, and ended up on a coach to the airport terminal around 4.45am. I have no recollection of doing this. I must have done some research the day before about taxis. Maybe I asked the guest house. I've genuinely no idea. The specific low-cost terminal was only notable for being exceptionally busy at 6am, for having its baggage drop-off areas behind a security area that only passengers could get to, and the unusual delights of chicken curry donuts from a kiosk at the departure gate. I chose not to partake, and had a kaya puff instead, because it was cheap and I'd never heard of one before. Kuala Lumpur's low-cost terminal airport was next to the main airport, and no longer exists. I've only ever been to Kuala Lumpur once, so I can't comment on the continued existence of chicken curry donuts. Flight AirAsia, one of Southeast Asia's equivalents to EasyJet, not Ryanair. AirAsia staff's smile was uneventful. Arriving was also uneventful. $36 for visa on arrival. It would have been $35, but I didn't have a spare passport size photograph. Which, as an aside, means it's cheaper to get into Laos not having one and paying the excess than it is to get your photo taken in a photo booth. Anyhow, Vientiane Airport is a very nice, simple, functional airport. It's just very quiet. We were the only plane landing, and one suspects that not many planes were due to take off or land there today. You'd have thought I'd made a note of things like how long the flight was. I did not. These little points, even then, make it clear why I'm not actually useful as a travel blogger. To be fair, even you know the likes of Simon Reeve and Michael Palin don't tell you how to follow in their footsteps. I am not Richard Ayoade. A court taxi to hotel arrived about 10am but was allowed to check in anyway. After overdosing on mosquito spray and suntan lotion, making sure to leave a while before going out in the sun this time, I headed out to see the city. My first stop was a Vietnamese noodle soup place a couple of blocks away, where I had... Nope, 
I don't know what it was. It had noodles in it, and broth, and veg, and some other stuff. It also had a mountain of crushed chilli on the top. This was my doing and would come back to haunt me later. The lime wedges helped me to get any searing pain in my lips, at the, well, the time anyway. After surviving breakfast, I walked through the streets, past a... Well, it's called That Dam, and it's some kind of Buddhist reliquary. Although, strictly speaking, a communist country, Buddhism is very strongly linked with the style and attitude of the people here. And Buddhas aplenty were where I was headed. Catching a local bus from the bus station, even though details are in the guidebook, this is something I just wouldn't have done on my own even last year. Several touts tried to persuade me that, oh, I wanted to go in comfort on a minivan, but I refused. 6,000 kip and an hour of standing at the front of a very packed minibus later, I still feel that I made the right decision. I went to the rather bizarre area known as Buddha Park. One man's folly is another man's tourist attraction. Evidently he thought, what the hell, and decided to create a park devoted to statues of the Buddha and related details, e.g. Naga, for reasons known only to himself. Quite odd. And that bus is another example of how I wanted to do my journey and how I am as a backpacker. There are easier ways of getting to Buddha Park. Much easier and quicker ways, but not as cheap. On my visit, there were around 12,000 keep to the pound, so that bus journey was 50p. The thing is, and what you don't quite grasp from my original notes, is that there is almost no information that this local bus existed. The guidebook made reference to it, but that guidebook was a couple of years old, and while the internet definitely existed, even then people weren't really travel blogging to that much detail on it. In effect, I was aware the bus might exist, so I went looking for it. As it happens, lots of other backpackers were doing the same thing, but for a different reason. Close to Buddha Park is the bridge that connects Laos to Thailand, and the bus was standing room only because many people catching it were headed to the border because it's cheaper than a taxi and, quote, more authentic an experience, unquote. Stay there for a little while, not sure how long, as I don't have a timepiece. Travelling without knowing the time is both frustrating and strangely liberating. Had some food and looked out over the Mekong and onto Thailand. This is a very boring view, as it's flat and there's nothing much on the other side either, but it's different. When I hailed the bus on the way back, I was the only person on it, so I even got to sit down. Ah, yes, bus travel in Laos is also a way to get things delivered. As on a couple of occasions, people on the bus either gave things to or were given things from people they knew on the roadside. And a way to shop for snacks. On the way back, the bus was delayed because people kept buying food from a roadside vendor. There was also a feeling from me that at the same stop, serving the Thai-Lao border, that the bus wasn't going to go anywhere until more people got on. One thing that's very apparent reading back my travel diaries, not just from this trip, but in fact in pretty much all of them, is how little time I spend actually talking about the places that I visit. Like, apart from the pictures, which obviously don't work in an audio medium, I've written almost nothing about Buddha Park itself. This weird, huge, notable attraction on the edge of Vientiane that I considered important enough to spend my first day in Laos to see before anything else, and all I say about it is that it's bizarre, and a park devoted to statues of the Buddha and related details, e.g. Naga. And now it's nearly 12 years later, and I have to explain it in much more detail. It's a weird site, originally created in 1958 by a Hindu or Buddhist priest. He seems to have straddled the line somewhat. Who? I think the best way of saying it is that he seems to have had a religious-type calling to construct and display a series of not entirely officially branded statues of Buddha, Hindu gods like Vishnu and Shiva, and all manner of other creatures, both earthly and, well, not. There's around 200 of them. They're made of concrete, and they're as well-constructed as they sound. Uh, that said, you can actually climb up inside one of them and look out over the Hupole Park, which gives you a feel for the place. I did it at the start, I seem to recall. 
There's also a huge, like a 40 metre long reclining Buddha, which possibly could be one of the biggest I've seen, though there was a place in Sri Lanka that would have run it close. Interestingly, when the communists took over Laos in the mid-70s, he fled across the Mekong River into Thailand, where he constructed a very similar park of statues. You can, just about, see one from the other. Back in Vientiane, I wandered past one of the Watts, then took a tour of the, one of the more depressive aspects of Laos life, a museum dedicated to unexploded bombs and prosthetic limbs. Basically, being the world's most bombed country, an impressive achievement given that it wasn't even at war at the time, or at least not with the party who bombed it. The USA were fighting in Vietnam and bombed the whole of eastern Laos to try and stop the Viet Minh from supplying rebels in the south. Means there's been an awful lot of death and injury sustained from things like cluster bombs. And it's still going on. Estimates are that 30% of such bombs don't explode on impact, meaning much of the countryside is still dangerous. This museum is part of COPE, C-O-P-E, who in part make plastic arms and legs for people who encounter such things. Quite sobering. Although the mango strawberry ice cream shake and the chat with the friendly, yes, yes, female, lady behind the bar was relaxing. Obviously, dark history was one of the reasons I chose to do the journey I did. That said, although I knew the Vietnam War happened, and although I was aware of the subsequent Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia, I came on this trip knowing pretty much nothing about Laos. Like, at all. I knew where it was. I knew some very basic information about its politics. But that's pretty much all. It's not a country we're taught anything about, for many reasons. Even if we'd have studied colonial history, it wasn't one of ours, therefore it was never discussed. And it's not a place that I'd have had any kind of cultural osmosis for, so it was a journey into the unknown for me, in a sense. Anne balled back to the hotel. Started feeling rough, partly caused by the heat, mostly caused by the breakfast chilies. So I had a rest before heading out for some food. Needed something soothing. Found it in a Chinese restaurant. Chinese green tea works wonders, and the boiled rice should stodge and soak up any excess issues. Laos is an hour behind Malaysia, despite being further east, so it got a dark a bit earlier than yesterday. That's code for, I shat a lot of liquid in for a few hours. Don't worry, I was fine the next day. I just put less chilli in my soup. That's my biggest learning for the Lao part of the trip. I guess I need to set the scene here. I have, in front of me, a big bowl. The bowl contains a lot of liquid, some veg, some noodles and some meat. On the table I'm sat at are a couple of small petrolite dishes and bottles containing liquid, powder and or detritus. These include crushed chilies raw chilies, sugar, and quite often limes. There are no labels. I have to assume that if I see a dark liquid, it's soy sauce, if I see a lighter liquid, it's fish sauce, and if I see a red powder, it's chilli. Without tasting it, I have no indication how strong any of them are. I like chilli, so I put a lot in. And by a lot, I mean a teaspoonful. And then I mix it into the soup liquid in the bowl. It's a teaspoon, and that's a big bowl. Like a bowl for breakfast, and I find I don't need lunch. So a teaspoon is fine, right? Turns out, a teaspoon of chilli and louse is about three quarters of a teaspoon too much, even for someone who was once complimented in Mexico on their ability to handle chilies. Culturally, while still quite a worldly white envy, and definitely nowhere near my average peers in places like Kirkby and Asheville, for whom a chicken rogue and Josh is quite hot, I'm still very much a white envy. Day four. Who wants to be a millionaire? I mean, if we're talking songs, ABC released a song called How to Be a Millionaire, but it seems here I went for the more obvious pop culture reference. The title of this day in my travel diary is because I drew out a million kip from a cash point. I think this was the first time I did this, and it's not something that often happens. Indonesia two years later is the only one that came to mind, ignoring Uzbekistan and its frankly stupid currency controls on my visit that they have since relaxed. But it's always a bit of a weird thrill to go, hey, I'm a millionaire. I am not John Maynard Keynes. I am not an economist. It is not for me to comment on monetary policy of my own country let alone places several thousand miles away, 
with their own politics. I did have some initial trouble, though. I went to an ATM in the centre of the NTM, put my card in, and it said, Transaction not complete. Tried it twice, failed twice. So, that means I was stuck with $190 to last me the rest of the holiday. While Laos and Cambodia are on terribly expensive places, there is a limit, and it would be terribly embarrassing to run out of money in what are amongst the cheapest countries in the world, relatively speaking. While walking to Pantuxai, I passed a large, plush, air-conditioned branch of Bank Franc Lao, and headed in into it to change $50. However, I got distracted by the cash point whose display was playing adverts, as ours do, saying that this was the first European bank in Laos. Hmm, thought I'd try it to see what happened. It said, there'll be a 30,000 kip fee for this. I said, OK. It then gave me my requested 1 million kip. No mess, no fuss. Just in convertible currency. Shrug. And no, card fraud never really occurred to me. I have had my card cloned before now, but it wasn't because I used it in Southeast Asia. Or in fact, anywhere on my travels, my card was cloned in Kirkby and Ashfield. There's a lesson there for all of us, I think, which might be, be careful of the UK's rust belt. Anyway, what did I do with all this cash? My plan for the day was to wander around the main sites of the city itself, a comfortable walking tour in effect. My first stop was actually a cafe where a baguette with scrambled egg and a mango smoothie was consumed. There were a couple of small dogs sniffing around. As a side note, dogs seem to be quite popular pets in Vientiane, but none of them appear to be vicious. So most of them just loll about in the shade. There is also a definitive lack of dog poo. I've heard similar tales about Asuncion in Paraguay, a city which has always given me vibes of dogs just lying around, not being mothered to do much in the oppressive heat, while shutters on windows and worn-out signs creak rustily in the still air, the roads empty as people sit in bars and waste the afternoon away. I've clearly never been to Paraguay, but it's on my list. Anyway, Vientiane isn't quite like that. For one thing, the temples, known as Watts, are more colourful than Catholic churches. So, headed down one of the main streets, past the main fountain, Nam Phu, or would have done had it not been hidden behind construction walls. Evidently, they're refurbishing it, making it the centrepiece of a new bright place. So, carried onwards to one of the bigger temples in the city, Watsi Saket, believed to be the oldest surviving Wat in the city. This is, however, less impressive when you consider that the ties burnt the entire city to the ground, except this temple, and evicted everyone when they crushed a revolt here in the 1820s. Sadly, if you're looking for nuance about the history of Lao-Thai relations, I'm not the podcast for you. I'm just a travel blogger. The place is full of Buddhas and Nagas. The Nagas being a snake-like, dragon-esque thing that's highly prevalent in Indian and Indo-Chinese mythology, often depicted as a cobra, but in Laos it's believed they still live in the Mekong. Hmm, sea serpents. Is in the world of Warcraft? The temple is kind of divided into two segments, an outer courtyard area surrounding an inner sanctum or cloister area. The courtyard is populated with quite ornate and colourful Buddhas and what amount to gravestones, decorated memorials with small pictures of people and dates when they lived, years. Around the outer walls of the sanctum are enclosed areas, colonnades, full of statues and sculptures, much plainer than those outside, but much more legion but also along the walls, little mini alcoves, each with even smaller statues therein. The very centre of the inner sanctum is the main focus of dedication, a small building wherein lies a huge Buddha, surrounded by flowers and decoration, with the walls painted with now fading murals depicting the Buddha's life. But you're not allowed to take photographs in there, so I didn't. On a similar vein, just down the road, is Horfo Kao, which is in effect a museum of religious art, which in practice makes it not much different to a what, just without the monks. And indeed, it used to be a small temple itself. The central focus here, up a flight of steps, is devoted to small museum pieces, whilst the landscape courtyard outside, 
contains quite a few statues. And rather oddly, one stone jar. What I didn't mention at the time, because the blog had a hyperlink in it, is that the stone jar is one from the Plain of Jars in northern Laos. I didn't go there because of limited time. But it's one of the most important prehistoric sites in the whole of Southeast Asia, with thousands of stone jars dating from around 3,000 years ago laid in the landscape. Burial practices, it's believed. Obviously, because everything is burial practice. Quite a walk then took me to Pantuxai. Any relation this monument has to the Arc de Triomphe is purely... Yeah, the guidebook says that the name's derivation is Patu, meaning arch, and Tsai, meaning victory. It stands in the middle of a roundabout, and the road San Lanxiang runs in a perfectly straight line, dual carriageway from the city centre to it. Apparently built from concrete, supposedly brought from the USA to build a runway, this was the 1960s and Laos relations weren't terribly good, it itself describes itself as a monster of concrete. Behind it is a garden area with a large lake, while inside, here you can climb to the very top, are at least two floors of marketeers selling clothing, souvenirs and general tat. And I bought a hat, because my friend Sarah said I should. And by now it was getting very hot, even with the hat, so after being chatted to by a couple of locals and me trying to explain snow to them, I wandered off to find food. Eventually found a cheap place doing the fairly standard noodle soup type effect, Malaysian, oddly, but this time I purposely didn't add any of either of the crushed chilies nor the small raw chilies that were on offer at the table. Stayed there for a while, enjoying the fan and the free water, before heading back to the hotel where I declined to go out again and instead rested all day. Now I know why things start so early in Laos, because the midday sun is just too strong. Hmm, siesta. Went out about 6pm to source more food, just after the hotel suffered a power cord. Wonder how many pence per kilowatt hour electricity is in Laos. Ignored the pizza restaurant because, well, I don't really care if it's the best Neapolitan pizza you've ever tasted. You know, I'm I'm in Laos and I can get pizza for the same price. 71,000 kip, £6, back home. Instead, went for chicken rice from a street stall, 13 kip, a dodgy sausage balls on a stick, 5 kip, and, to celebrate Pancake Day, yesterday, but who's counting, a chocolate parita, a pancake-like batter folded and cut into squares, 10k. On my walkabout, I discovered the night market on the Mekong Riverside with hundreds of market stalls selling drawings, tat, etc., and kids skateboarding on the promenade. Very useful. Got accosted by a gaggle of teenage girls and a couple of boys who insisted I posed with them for a picture. Shub. The other thing to note about what I'm finding with regard to food in Laos is the preponderance of non-Lao places to eat. Having a phrase book is all very well, but when you're going to Chinese, Vietnamese or Malaysian places, it's not that much use. There's also a myriad of backpacker or touristy places that do burger and beer. These are quite popular. I am a little fearful of what I'll find on that score tomorrow when I go to Luang Prabang, but at least I'm only passing through the backpacker hotspot of Van Vieng, where the most popular activity is getting very drunk, or stoned, and then going tubing on a rubber ring down the river. The Australian Embassy has issued a warning to tourists going to Laos to not do this, because that appears to be the most common way that tourists die in Laos. Spoiler, I did not set foot in Van Vieng, but I low-key wished I had. Day 5, Thursday the 23rd of February, a day my blog notes were titled A Curse on You, Leila Galish, for reasons that will become apparent immediately. Leila Galish being one of my close friends and bad influences. So, before I went away, while I was planning the trip, I'd come to today and wondered what to do. The city of Loing Prabang was a new entry in my places to go, because so many people had recommended it, and it seemed more interesting than what I was planning on doing. But when I was arranging leaving it, the flight out south to Paxa on the Sunday was unavailable, so I had to book the Monday. This meant for a town that I wasn't originally going to go to, I was now spending four nights there. 
This meant I now had choices about how to get there on the Thursday, as I wasn't going to be rushed getting there. I could fly, cost $55, time spent 45 minutes, quick, boring, functional. Or I could get the bus, cost 110,000 kip, which is about 10 quid, time spent 9 to 12 hours, slow, scenic and lively. I asked around. All but two people, my friends Anne Law and Layla, suggested flying. Interestingly, both are well-travelled people. Layla in particular, she had actually done this very journey just under six years previously. A third, Sarah, said both had their merits, but having been on a similar bus in Egypt, she thought flying might suit me better. Yeah, well. Partly driven by a wariness of money, partly by a feeling of you only live once, and partly because it might do me some self-good, I decided to go by bus. It's only 380 kilometres, and on western roads it would be pretty simple, although on western roads also much more expensive. So I got up around 6am to get the bus station in time to catch such an early departure. They're quite regular, but when it takes that long, I wanted to make sure I got there, at least if not in daylight, then not long after. Side note, the hotel had a second power cut later in the evening as I was lying in bed. Ironic cheers from a nearby bar suggested it covered a couple of blocks. This didn't make lying in bed feel very comfortable, as the fan was electric. Started the walk to the bus station, which on my map was a comfortable three to four kilometres. As expected, a couple of tuk-tuks came by. The first said the bus station had moved to about 7k away. A cunning trick to get more money out of me, and wanted 60,000 kip, and wouldn't bargain down. The second one, a little while later, said he'd do the journey for 30,000. This then rose to 40,000 when he went to the bus station and found that uh, it had in fact moved, and was now in fact about uh, seven kilometres away. But still, 33% off the original fare. Arriving at the bus station, very quiet, and looking at the list of bus times, I requested the normal 110,000 kip fare for the trip at 7.30am. Despite the buses running roughly every hour, he said the next available normal bus wasn't until 11. There was, however, a VIP bus at 8am I could catch for 130 kip, so I went for that instead. The difference between the buses is quite vague, but basically the VIP bus has aircon and goes faster. The slower bus has windows that open and stops more frequently. It's also a smaller seating space. Traditionally, the VIP buses that run on a few of the main routes tend to be taken by backpackers. Indeed, most guest houses and travel agencies, come internet cafes, come laundries, offer to buy tickets on the VIP buses on your behalf, but not normally on the normal buses. However, my bus was mostly made up of Lao students with a couple of old ladies and about 8 to 10 foreigners. The bus held maybe 40 to 50 people. We left on time at 8am. On the way out of the bus station, we very nearly hit another vehicle. But when you're in a bus that huge, I'm not sure how much that matters. The first maybe half of the journey from Vientiane until somewhere past Vieng Vang was pretty uneventful, quite flat and much on gravel road rather than tarmac, so it was a little bumpy in places. It's quite weird to see the bus move either to the other side of the road or well onto the roadside to avoid a pothole or other surface issue. We stopped off at a effectively roadside service station on market for about 20 minutes a couple of hours in, where people toileted and stocked up on snacks. Plenty of people around to buy from, either at stalls or just walking around the coach parking area. An hour or so after Vang Vieng, the journey changed. While the road was now tarmacked, and would remain so for the rest of the trip, the landscape became more hilly and picturesque. This meant that our progress slowed right down as the road went uphill and around some very sharp bends. Because I don't have a timepiece, I don't know quite how long we were going up for, but it must have been at least two hours, possibly even three. The bends were so sharp that we almost had to stop to get round some of them. In addition, there was no safety barrier, so the more we rose, the larger the drop at the roadside. This only became apparent when we overtook a lorry just before a bend. On my side, we looked very close to the lorry, but after we'd passed, I looked to my left and saw the passengers going, oh my, that was close, as they looked at the drop on their side. 
Not long before a second food stop, we broke down. Well, we didn't break down, rather the aircon stopped working. Since on the VIP buses you can't open the windows, this means that if the aircon stops, it becomes unbearably hot after only a short while. Fortunately, after about five minutes, they got it working again. A couple of hours later, the aircon stopped working again. This time it took maybe 15 to 20 minutes for them to fix it. And for a time, we drove on with the engine cover open. It's at the back. This is pretty much how it is over here. No one's particularly miserly about how long things take. As intimated earlier, there's actually no fixed arrival times. It depends on so many factors. And to be honest though, one suspects that eight to nine hours is my limit for journeys like this. And certainly after it got dark, I kind of lost interest. At least while it was daylight, I could admire the scenery, which was indeed spectacular. I'd be quite casual about the fact that on some of the blind bends, we very nearly got hit by trucks passing the other way. Bear in mind that we were on one of the first buses of the day. That means that every other bus does much more of the journey in the dark. No streetlights, of course. And there's even, would you believe, a designated night VIP bus that acts as a sleeper service. It has beds. Not sure how much sleep you'd get on a road like this. The journey in total lasted approximately 11 and a half hours, and we were a bit relieved when it was over. As per normal in Laos, the bus station is some distance away from the city centre, but eight of us foreigners grouped together into a tuk-tuk for the journey. 15,000 kip each. When you think about it, tuk-tuk drivers make a killing. The original driver of Vientiane wanted to charge me 50% of the price for the entire journey to Alain just to get to the bus station. We got to the hotel, checked in, dumped my bags, and then immediately crossed the road for food. Never before has noodle soup and a chocolate crepe been so well received. I guess what this brings to mind, and not for the first time on my podcast, is the question of the compromises and balances between money, time, comfort and mental health. It's the same as the, do you get a really early morning flight or train because it's cheap? Do you stay in the backpack hostel and suburbs or the half-decent guest house in the centre of town? And of course, Tesco and brand room can't be that bad, can it? Sadly, yes. Yes, it is. Twelve years later, twelve years older, twelve years richer, and you'd think I'd make different decisions. You'd be wrong, as all of my overnight megabus journeys between Glasgow and London are testament to. But then, I trust a loud bus to actually get to my destination than a train on the West Coast mainline. On day six, Friday the 24th of February, this day continued the musical theme by being titled You Put Your Left Shoe On, Your Left Shoe Off, and subtitled On Off, On Off, Shake It All About. You give respect to Buddha, then you turn around, that's what it's all about. As you can probably guess, today was all about temples, and one of the aspects of visiting Buddhist temples is that you're supposed to take your shoes off before entering. I've never been quite certain why, although research from my Customs and Manners Twitter space last year suggested it was, in part, to reflect the vulnerable and inconsequential human nature in the presence of a divine being, or at least divine nature, and partly so the sanctity and holiness of the temple complex wouldn't be tainted by outside dirt being brought inside on the soles of shoes. There are several logical inconsistencies here, but I'm not a leading figure in a religious organisation, so I'm not the right person to question this. Related. A B. Marshall quotient, 74%. And this might be the first written note of this concept, which followed me around since, especially in Australia. It's a bit of an in-joke that doesn't deserve an explanation. Suffice to remind you this was two years before the creation of my birth at Backpacker Identity. Flying Prepang is an interesting town. I've been trying to find the word to describe it all day. Sultry, maybe. It's certainly quiet, despite having lots of backpackers and lots of bars. Reasonably relaxed. Rarely get approached by tuk-tuk drivers. Lazy might be a better word. The best thing I could come up with, and some of the streets in the feel of the place around the Mekong waterfront back this up, is if you imagine some pre-World War II literature or setting for a film where you have hot sun beating down on, on a tropical river, 
crickets chirping, dogs laying lazily on the roadside, with colonialists in straw hats and jackets sipping gin and looking outside through a window with bamboo shooters and mosquito nets, with an archaic fan buzzing noisily overhead. That. A bit like a Suncyon, in fact. Maybe. Had a good sleep, but probably not long enough. Breakfast was had at one of the many road-fronted stall shops that line the streets round here. One thing to say about Laos, you'll never go hungry. As long as you like noodles, that is. Or rice. Then wandered in the slightly cooler morning air. The guidebook says there are 329 steps to the top of Fusi, the hill in the centre of the town, a top which is an inaccessible stupor, from which there are good views across the city. Well, would be if it wasn't quite so hazy. Both up and down there are several stairwells. There are a number of watts, as well as a couple of oddities, like Buddha's footprint, a depression in the rock that would have made him take approximately a size 50 shoe. And you wonder why he's never depicted wearing any. Buddha, the original barefoot backpacker and podcaster. Your mileage may vary. Watts, temples, actually took up a good proportion of my walking time today. Some of them were quite small. Wat Fa Huak consists of precisely one small hut containing a statue of Buddha. But others are pretty expansive. I got a bit lost in Wat Samathila on the way down from Fusi looking for the Buddha footprint. One of the differences between Watts and churches, by the way, is that the Wat is the whole complex, the actual religious area, the Sim, housing the Watts main Buddha, the equivalent to, say, the altar inside a Christian church, is in one of the buildings in the centre of the Wat. The rest of the Wat is the other ornate buildings, Stupa, Miscellanea. Although where a Wat consists only of a Sim, as per Wat Pa Huac, it's still called a Wat. Some Wats also still function as monasteries, so will also include monks' living quarters, etc., the biggest one of those I went to today was Wat Zieng Thong, which had several impressive-looking buildings of various sizes, as well as the monks' dining hall and quarters, which weren't quite so decorative. The sim here was being renovated, so while we could go inside, it wasn't terribly pretty. And on my travels, I saw quite a lot of monks. Some were busy cleaning, sweeping leaves away in the watts, some were walking down the street to go to shopping, and a couple were on motorbikes. Yes. So, the last comment there refers back to my trip then years previously, to China, where we went to a couple of Tibetan monasteries and came upon monks who, far from living a remote and ascetic life, were found using mobile phones and riding around Sichuan on motorbikes and scooters. The spiritual life is often not what you expect. Consider that of the Catholic monks of Western and Central Europe, pretty much inventing the modern concept of beer. After walking along the colonial-looking Mekong waterfront, I headed back to the hotel to stay out the midday sun. I was a bit late for that, though, though I did have lunch in the shade, a strawberry jam crepe and papaya fruit shake. I left again just before 2pm, though interestingly this felt the hottest part of the day. My next port of call was the Royal Palace Museum, the grounds of which included a huge watt of sim which, with a very ornate carrying device. Except that what gets lifted on this and carried around the town is no person, but rather a surprisingly small Buddha statue, the Fobang, from hence the town gets its name. The museum grounds also host the city's theatre, which holds traditional storytelling in dance a couple of nights a week. The bulk of the grounds were dedicated to the monarchy, that is to say the museum itself used to be the monarch's house, and one of the outbuildings that presumably used to be a garage now hosts a few of the monarch's cars, mainly donated by the Americans, and includes an Edsel. Edsel is a no-go. What monarchy? I don't hear you ask. In fact, Lao used to have three. There used to be three kingdoms, Lang, Prabang, Vientiane and Champasak. It then got a bit complicated when the French colonised and partitioned the country in the late 19th century. Luang Prabang was made into a protectorate, the rest governed directly from Hanoi. It then got even more complicated when the French left after the Battle of Dien Bien Phu 
Laos was nearly split, like Vietnam, into communist and non-communist areas, and one of the members of the other ex-ruling dynasties seems to have thrown his lot in with the communists. Things got more complicated. The US got involved, Laos became the most bombed country in the world, and unsurprisingly, the communists won, not by fighting, incidentally, but by supporting whichever government faction was in power at the time, including the royalists. But eventually, they overthrew the monarchy in Luang Prabang and turned the house into a museum. Not only are photographs not allowed inside, but you literally can't take anything in. There's a room to the side where you place your bags, etc. into a lockable locker, then take the key with you as you walk around. Things banned include hats, bags, cameras, mobile phones and shoes. Yes, you did hear that right. It's actually quite an interesting browse, though, with uh, portraits of the last few kings and queens, utensils they used, things given to them by foreign dignitaries, like examples of moon rock all contained within the rooms that presumably looked how they were. Even the large bed had a mosquito net on it. Pretty sizeable. Each room was huge in and of itself. Yet again, I seem to have made notes about the background, but very little about the museum itself. And as no pictures were allowed inside, I don't have an easy reference point to talk about it. I also noticed I was bad about things like recording the temperature. I say, it's hot, a lot, but I'm British, so again, my reference point is different. I don't think it was as hot as either my later adventures to Central Asia or West Africa, but for someone like me, not used to such weather, it was quite noticeable. From there, I had a wander through some of the small side streets of the town, past a few more small watts, obviously, and had a browse around the outside of the French Cultural Centre, which had a series of information boards about two French people who'd done a year and a half trip by car from France to Laos, passing through 18 countries and explored issues about water use and conservation in each of them. Commendable. Back to the hotel for a bit, then headed off down to the waterfront of the Nam Cam River, where there are lots of restaurants. Found a place that sold reasonably cheap or lamb, a kind of soupy stew of stuff, but which contains wood chips as flavourings. Not quite sure what kind of wood it is. Oddly, when I accidentally bit into one, the taste seemed familiar, though. Was there for quite a while, partly because restaurants in Laos take the time over service, especially the bill, but also because when you know this, you don't actually mind, and it's such a nice setting, even in the dark. The official name of Laos is the Lao People's Democratic Republic. Yes, it's one of those countries with a name that isn't true on at least two counts, and only on a third by a technicality. It's often shortened to Lao PDR, which has been backronymed by both locals and backpackers as Lao Please Don't Rush, precisely because of this casual, laid-back vibe. Some like it because it's chill. Others find it annoying and a testament to why the country has never really pushed on and why it lags behind in many indicators of development and finance, being in the bottom third of Asian countries for GDP per capita, for instance. Note that nearly 10% of all employment in Laos is in some way connected to tourism, while 80% is in subsistence agriculture. Now, given the country, certainly in the north, has been bankrolled since my visit by Chinese investors, things may well be changing, but that's a question I'll leave answering to people who've been there since me. Day 7, Saturday the 25th of February, was titled The Phalang is Funny and Has No Balance. The word phalang here means foreigner, or more specifically, someone who is white. Apparently this comes from a Laotian rendition for the word France. I rolled out of the guesthouse around 9am, which is about an hour later than I'd planned. That said, I knew today would be a reasonably relaxed and quiet day. Sort of. Had a wander on the roads away from the town centre at first, although I already knew that the UXO Information Centre, more bombs, was closed at weekends. There were a couple of other little things in that general direction that I wanted to pop by. First though came breakfast at another one of those roadside shacks. Chicken fried rice, one pound. Which, while it might seem to us an odd breakfast, remember over here rice or noodles are the staple foodstuff, the same way we might eat bready items. Meal served with cold green tea, quite refreshing. I don't remember drinking tea. 
I don't remember why I would drink tea. But anyway. Uh, this morning wasn't as hot as the previous days, which was a relief, but it was still warm, so the walk was comfortable, at least this early. Next up was the statue of the Red Prince, a monument to celebrate the hundred years since the birth of President Su Fanuvong, first president of Lao PDR. Now, remember I said earlier the role of the monarchy was complicated? Well, he was not only the figurehead leader of the communist insurgency, but also the half-brother to the reigning king, hence the epithet Red Prince. His statue stands in quite a nice landscaped garden area, but just in the middle of nowhere, really. Obviously, my walk then took me past another Wat, Wat Manoram, which, again, a couple of the buildings were adorned with murals. On the outside of the sim this time, however, were a couple of long panels of mural that were actually sculpted rather than drawn. The quiet back streets took me past a large group of men playing several games of pétanque, you know, that was French once, and then back to the main road along the Mekong. Walking away from the city centre a short way, towards the monument dedicated to Kaysen Fomivan, the first Prime Minister and de facto head of Lao PDR during the aforementioned Suvanifong's presidency, I came upon what I presumed to be another communist memorial. It had a red star on the top of it. Although uninscripted and located in an overgrown field behind gates that were held shut by a large stone, Obviously, I went back in and had a nose at it. I then turned back on myself and walked up the road along the Mekong. This is one of the many main routes in Luang Prabang and is full of guest houses and food stands, but obviously not as cheesy as Blackpool. Eventually, I reached the, I guess if you're being kind, you'd call it the ferry terminal. My aim was to cross the river to the small settlement of Ban Xiang Mien. At the top of the stairwell down to the departure point, there are lots of people touting for boat business, but they didn't seem to be able to comprehend that I was happy just to get on the boat with the locals. They wanted to charge me 60,000 kip to charter a boat so I could float off as I pleased. I figured playing 5,000 kip one way to get in a boat with a bowl of locals was a much better deal. It's one of the things I find irksome, especially as an introvert, this whole come here, come here and hustle culture. I'm very much a I will come to you when I need you person and given my social anxieties, that's likely to be never. And yes, I'm fully aware of the logical and logistical problems this brings, especially in a location where public information is quite limited and the additional language issue. I am also aware I don't react quite how people expect me to in such situations. I kind of low-key wish I had the ability to be A2 grade in any language I need, so not in any way good or comfortable at it, just with the knowledge that, you know, I've, I've got enough to have a simple conversation that's detailed enough to make people go, oh, not an easy target. Boats sail regularly across the river and the trip only takes maybe two minutes. The fun bit is getting on and off them, especially with someone like me who doesn't have much in the way of balance. So it was a bit weird when I got on, especially as there wasn't much room, so I had to turn around and sit on the floor. Doing so made me collide with a load of empty water bottles that one of the other passengers was transporting. Cue embarrassment. I'd never heard of dyspraxia in 2012. I was, however, fully aware of my own physical limitations and the effect that they have. I was also conscious here that I was close to water, my nemesis, and that that boat, well, it was almost a very large canoe to be fair, was also very close to water. I got to the other side and walked up a steep stand hill into the centre of the village, two roads almost entirely consisting of market stalls and food stalls. I took the right fork and after not very long at all it turned into a paved single track road with houses either side, against some of which served as makeshift cafes. I passed one small watt, several sleeping dogs, and kept pace with a truck full of stones and bricks with three or four kids in the back hitching a ride. The road eventually petered out, first into a stone track and then into more or less a footpath. At this point there were a flight of steps leading up to another watt, watt chompet. Some watch you have to pay to enter, for upkeep mainly, but it's usually some relative derisory sum like 5,000 kip. This one had an adult and two kids looking after the ticket stall, made passing commenters to my hat, or in fact, where did you get that hat, and having a discussion about whether it was Vietnamese in style or not. 
The climb, about 120 steps, was quite tough in the now late morning sun, but the water at the top was actually pretty nice and cooling. The views out over the rivers and over Luang Prabang town were good, but again it was still quite hazy. It tends to be this time of year apparently. I went down and wandered a bit further to another Wat, Wat Longkun, which apparently has another royal symbolic connection. Would-be kings traditionally came here for a couple of days before they were due to be crowned. Today, however, the place seemed completely deserted. The long wooden walkway in, however, reminded me of some kind of entry to a dark place in a video game. There were more things further down the path, but they were a bit far, and by now it was very hot, so I headed back. Before getting the boat back to Loang Prabang, I stopped off at one of the market stalls to buy food. 5,000 kip got me some dodgy meat on a stick that tasted faintly of innards, and 2,000 kip got me three aliens on a stick that were mostly cartilage. Chicken feet, apparently. I'm one of those people who, as you'll find out when I talk about food in Cambodia, will put most things in their mouth if offered. There's full swap radio listeners' shout-out. I try to slip one in every episode. Two if you count that double entendre. But with regard to food, there's a lot of foods I don't like, but they're all fairly mundane. Coffee, carrot, beetroot, celery, orange. When it comes to the sort of things you're less likely to find in Lidl, I'm all for it. When it comes to dead animal, though, my only criteria are that it's dead, and with the exception of some fish, clearly, it's cooked. Though I've never understood the British obsession with lamb. Ah yes, the boat back. Much emptier this time, and I had to wait longer to catch one, so I even got a seat. Getting to the seat was quite interesting. My lack of balance ensured that I rocked the boat at least twice and nearly fell over once. Cue much more amusement from the locals. Meh. Speedy journey though, so it wasn't long till I was back on dry line and heading back to the hotel for an early afternoon sun avoidance. I left the hotel again around 4pm, but it was still pretty hot. I again headed south as I did this morning, but this time turned left and crossed the old bridge. A bridge across the Nam Can River that's only accessible by pedestrians, bicycles and motorbikes. But almost exclusively the latter, it appears. As a side note, not only are motorbikes incredibly common here, but I'm not sure what the legal age to ride one of your own is. I only comment because I'm sure I've seen some ridden by like 13 to 14 year olds, or maybe people are just looking older at an earlier age. Presumably this restriction on bridge passage is because it's structurally unsound. The fact that a couple of the wooden beams creaked and moved when I was walking across it suggests that very fact. Possibly one of the scariest experiences of my life. It wasn't a very long bridge, but still. A few years later I had a worse experience in Philippines that may have scarred me for life when I had to walk along a narrow strip of wood to get from the boat we were on to the shore via another boat with my backpack, while avoiding and having to duck under some cables. I managed to do it without the backpack, which then got handed back to me, but it was a far scarier experience for me in my head than anyone probably realised. It was quite a drop down into water of an unknown depth, even close to land. There's not much on the far side of the Nam Cam, but it's quite pleasant. There's another Wat, Wat Funalang, and a well-regarded restaurant with cushion recliners rather than seats, but the menu wasn't terribly interesting. A small selection of generic Chinese dishes, so I didn't eat there. Instead, I walked down the stairwell to the riverfront to cross on the bamboo bridge I photographed yesterday. These bamboo bridges are only built in the dry season, as it's only then that the water level is low enough to be bridged. It's another interesting bridge, as it bounces as you walk, and the gaps in the bamboo are wide enough to be visible. It's a bit like walking on a netted trampoline. Had some food at one of the riverside restaurants I passed yesterday. I'm using up my money so fast because I'm spending so much on decent restaurants for evening food. Today was expensive, 60,000 kib, £5. I must keep my spending in check. I honestly can't tell if that last sentence was ironic or not. The counterpoint between my angst about spending money and the amount of money I was actually spending makes it a little unclear as to how much of that was in my head. I do know I was consciously aware of not necessarily being able to get money easily because of earlier cash point issues, but I should always keep in mind there is always a way. Day 8, 
Sunday the 26th of February. Cultural Awareness and Diversity. Today didn't go initially as originally planned. Don't worry, that's not a bad thing. Simply that I'd got this idea to take one of the daily tours, a half-day trip along the Mekong to a cave in a local village. Except it left at 8am and I woke up at 8.15am. No biggie, just had to find other things to do. The morning was spent casually wandering around the city again for a couple of hours, going down the minor back streets and seeing what the tourists tend not to, which, to be honest, is not very much. Breakfast was another pole of noodle broth at a side street store. Oh yeah, quick education time again. Laos is a big country. Contained within that country are somewhere between 40 and 150 different ethnic tribes, groups, clans, whatever, depending on how you want to define different and on what level you look at. Each have different origins, beliefs, lifestyles, food, culture and language, and each live in different parts of the country. Some are uplanders and live on the sides of the mountains in the north, whilst some live in the Mekong Valley towards the south, and so on. Examples of different groups are the Alak, the Hmong, the Khmu, and the Thai Lao, the latter group being the majority of the Lao population, about 68%, which again makes the use of a Lao phrasebook somewhat pointless. Meh. With that in mind, one of the museums near my guest house is dedicated to the ethnic diversity of Laos, TAEC, the Traditional Arts and Ethnology Centre. It consists of four areas, two of them are the museum, where part of it is devoted to the different styles of dress and household items found in the traditional villages, while the other part is about how the different tribes handle courtship and wedding rituals. There's also the obligatory museum shop, but also a restaurant cafe which serves traditional ethnic food. It was pretty interesting to see the diversity. Some tribes display affluence by sewing Indo-Chinese coins onto their clothing, mainly women who do this. Some tribes excel in weaving. Indeed, women use weaving as a way to show how good they'd make as wives. With regard to courtship, many tribes are exogamous, as in you have to marry outside your clan. And while marriages aren't arranged, parental acceptance is very important. There's also the dowry price which the groom's parents have to find to give to the bride's family, sort of like a thank you for them to raising her. One of the case studies displayed was of chap who, partway through the courting ritual, won the National Lottery. His offer of a dowry price? Two bars of gold. It worked, funnily enough. It's proving slightly awkward to find out how much you win if you hit the jackpot on the Lao Lottery, although one site suggests 400 million kip, which at 2023 exchange rate is just under £16,000. If nothing else, this shows the relative difference in cost of living between the two countries. Tickets cost 1,000 kip, or 4 pence. I've never actually played a lottery in a foreign country, at least not on my own. There have been a couple of times I've done the French lotto, but only when I've been with French friends, and once me and my ex-girlfriend played the Irish lottery with a buyer of bookmakers in Kirkby and Ashfield, which clearly doesn't count. After going back to the guest house to avoid the midday sun, and having a bit of a rest, I felt I needed lunch. It being Sunday, the street stall cafe over the road where I'd gone on Thursday was closed. I had a hankering for a crepe and scoured the streets to find one, but they'd all left. There were still plenty of stalls, mostly selling the usual noodle soup and fruit shakes, though. I decided to have a proper meal instead, as I'd planned to go to the night market food stalls for the evening. And in fact, went back to Tech for some chicken pate stuff and sticky rice. Now, sticky rice does exactly what it says on the tin. It's sticky, it's served in a cylindrical bamboo rice holder, and you eat it with your fingers. You pull some out, roll it into a ball, and generally dip it into the food, or use it as a scoop. Obviously, it works better with dips or meals with thick sauces than it does for noodle soup, but works brilliant with something like pate. I was meant to make it at home, but never got round to it. Getting the right rice was the trickiest part, though that... That might be easier in Manchester than Kirkby and Ashfield. After another little rest at the hotel, I headed off for the long walk to the Okpop Tok Centre. This is actually a place where you can learn to do things like traditional silk weaving, bamboo weaving, or dyeing, all on half-day, full-day, or several-day courses. But you can just have a look around as well. It was pretty interesting as well. I, I, I'm no good at that sort of thing, as I'm not very good with all things manual. 
I saw the whole process though from farming the silk from silkworms through dyeing the silk several different ways of weaving it one of which looked horrendously complicated where a small cloth could take up to a month the dyeing too was interesting using about eight or nine different raw materials including things like rosewood turmeric and lemongrass you can create pretty much any color you like the most popular and common are the several colors made from the indigo plant indeed many of the costumes i'd seen at the tace were of a bluish pigment the venue was in a really nice setting overlooking the Mekong, quite a way out of the city centre. You'd have to be specifically looking for it to be going there. There's a cafe on site too that sells drinks, one of which is Silkworm Poo Tea. Tea made from the excrement of silkworms. It's a rich, dark brown, transparent colour, like a decent ruby beer, and tastes slightly roasted. The person who took me on the tour also kept feeding me this unusual fruit contained in a large bark-like pod. The fruit's made up of segments, and within each segment is a big seed, and it's a bit like eating a caterpillar, and it tastes weirdly like tomato soup. He called it something like tumelin or tumelin. I've since found out, thanks to my friend Nitzer in Canada, that it's actually tamarind, a substance I've never actually seen, although tasted it before because it's in brown sauce, which makes sense as it's also one of the dyes they use. Hey, if you'd never seen a coffee bean, would you know what it was? It's like with old cheesy jokes, I always muse on the fact that at any given moment somebody somewhere is hearing, my dog's got no nose, how does he smell? Awful, for the very first time. Maybe it's you. If so, congratulations. Once I left there, I took a long but casual walk back to the city centre. It was still daylight, but it had cooled quite a bit, which was nice. I ended up at the night market, which had already started to set up. The main street was closed off and stalls were set up in the street as well as to the side. Quite crowded. I had some food at one of the many all-you-can-eat-on-your-plate for 10,000 kip stalls, which is pretty good value for Loang Prabang. I'm annoyed I only discovered this on my last day. I ended up chatting to a Dane and an Austrian who'd come from the north of Laos and were three weeks into a two-month holiday. Gosh. Ooh, I also must mention the toilet in the guesthouse. While it has toilet paper, it is situated under the sink rather than by the toilet. Rather, it has a small shower-type nozzle. It's a very powerful jet spray that feels not a little how I'd imagine an enema would feel. Effective, though. But only once you've got the hang of it. Oh God, was this my first ever experience of the B-Day shower? The world's greatest way of cleaning your bottom. I became a huge fan of these things. I'd have had one installed in my house, but it would have required relaying the floor to make it waterproof. But I actually find them much better than toilet paper. Less wasteful, obviously. And also I'm more satisfied I'm actually clean down there. Especially after a run-in with a full teaspoon of overly strong chilli powder. Day 9, Monday the 27th of February, and this was entitled, What the Fu? Because who doesn't love a good pun? Got up reasonably early, in fact, giving myself plenty of time. I had a flight to catch, but it wasn't due to leave until 10.55am, so I thought I'd try to get to the airport by about 9. And I managed it, despite personally going the long way round and paying 5,000 kip to cross the bamboo bridge, because I just couldn't face crossing on the old bridge again. Not with a heavy rucksack, anyway. Regardless, it might well be the first time I've ever walked to the airport in order to catch a flight. This is, of course, something I've done many times since, in both directions. It always feels like one of those things that feels illegal, but isn't. I've no idea why it should be this way, since it's no different from a railway or bus station, but I guess it's because they're usually out of town and accessible only by a, a mess of really big roads. Loang Prabang International Airport is small, and it looks like they're still building a runway as there are building works all along the road leading up to it. The other notable thing was the number of Westerners on the flight. I tried to get a ticket for yesterday's flight, but they were un very unavailable, and I jokingly said to Sarah, maybe it's full of lazy backpackers who want to go to Siem Reap, for Angkor Wat. The flight goes there, but uses Paxa in southern Laos as a stopping-off point. And sure enough, when we arrived at Paxa, most of the passengers didn't disembark. The flight was uneventful, if a bit bumpy at times. Although I was by the window, I couldn't get many pictures, as the air was still pretty hazy. 
The in-flight snack was notably unremarkable, a small round cob with something grey on it that may have once been chicken, three pieces of fruit and a small slice of sponge cake with green stuff in the middle. Still, apart from a tamarind thing, it was the first thing I'd had to eat. Paxa Airport is even smaller. One runway. We landed and sped past the terminal building, then did a U-turn on the runway to get back to it. That small. I have obviously since been to much smaller airports, including ones without terminal buildings. But I think this remains the smallest international airport I've been to. If you don't count Hancock-Houghton International Airport in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which at the time of my visit didn't have any international flights anyway. At Paxa, I fortunately managed to come across an old and married couple who were also headed for Champasak, so we shared a minivan together. Champasak's a small town about 30 kilometres south of Paxa, but is famous for being the nearest location to Watfu Champasak, a large expanse of ruins of an ancient Khmer city. We're talking about 1500 years ago. Champasak is also famous for being the third seat of royalty, after Vientiane and Luang Prabang, when Lao had three kingdoms. One might almost say then I've done a full royal tour of Lao. The journey there was quite speedy, along a newly built road with two toll booths which were staffed by what I have to say look like archetypal Wild West era Mexican bandits. The whole area gets quite dusty so the look is practical if coincidental. Had small issues checking into my hotel, the most relaxed man you'll ever see staffing the least looking hotel building you'll ever see wasn't sure what to make of me. He called his supervisor who I ended up having to talk to on the phone, twice, because his idea of hold the line was to hang up. He still never confirmed he'd got my booking, but I think by the end of the second call he knew where to look. The chap on the reception desk didn't really care and showed me to a room anyway, a downstairs room looking out over the grass behind and hence the Mekong. Or would look out if the windows didn't have a gigantic mosquito mesh on them. I have no idea when or how I booked this hotel, or where I found it. I'm presuming on one of the hotel booking sites like Booking.com or TripAdvisor. I do seem to recall it being one of only two options and the most cost-effective of them, and that reviews of either were few. I guess most people who visit Watfu Shampasak stay in Paxa and take a taxi or some such on a day tour trip. I am not most people, as you know. He then wondered if I wanted to go to Watfu. I had been wondering if it were better to do this this afternoon or tomorrow morning, as I wasn't sure how long it would take to look around, but I agreed. He said a man with tuk-tuk would be along in about five minutes. Now, in Lao, please don't rush. Five minutes is an awfully long time. But then it wasn't as if I was in a rush either. There wasn't anything else I was going to be doing. But eventually he came, and we were off. An interesting journey. Tuk-tuks don't have the greatest suspension in the world. Look, they're simply vans with the back cut off and benches screwed along the sides. And the road there was still being built. We passed through a whole section where they were literally building it, so it was mostly bumpy and dusty. After arriving, we arranged for him to wait there while I went in and looked around. About an hour and a half, we reckoned. I assume they finished building it now. And possibly related, in my time at Watfu Champasak, I saw only about four people in the complex itself, two of whom were a French couple, while a few more were in the museum. I'm guessing the site must be more popular now. First was the museum, where they had quite a few exhibits that they'd moved in from outside, and others that had been taken from similar, much smaller sites around. The mythology here is very similar to Hinduism. The statues of Vishnu were reasonably common, as well as the Naga, of course. They also uh, had a passion for Linga. Linga are, in full, column-like, with a rounded end. However, usually just the rounded end is carved, often fived together in the pattern like that on a die. Sometimes they'll even carve a face on them. Since linga is Sanskrit for penis, that means that A, as with most mythologies, there's a certain amount of smut, and B, the ones with the carved faces must therefore be dickheads. As a side note, the site is built into a mountainside, Fu Fasak. However, the mountain is colloquially called Fu Kai, or Mount Penis. 
Now, I have to say that it didn't look much like a penis to me, but it does suggest that the people of Southern Laos like to push the point home a little. Remember this concept. We'll be coming, so to speak, back to Linga when we reach Cambodia in my next episode. The site itself is in very picturesque surroundings and starts with the lower layer of a couple of very large reservoirs, barres, that were formerly used to provide water to the city site. They are very long indeed, to the extent that I even wondered if I was walking in the right direction. What didn't help was the incredible heat and the fact nowhere seemed to have cell or provide water, ironically. At the other side of the barrage, there was a defined causeway laid out by pillars that originally ran between two of the barrage that are now dry. The middle section of the site, up a steep and uneven flight of stone stairs, sees the pathway go between the remains of two rectangular pavilions that are still being worked on, so you can't get that close to them, which is a shame because from a distance they look pretty hefty. The top level consists mostly of trees and Buddhist shrines, some in unusual places, like in a gap below a cliff face, the original Hindu shrines in effect being long gone. There are also some more unusual features, such as the elephant stone, not a stone roses song, but a stone with a carving of an elephant on it. But this is more recent, only about 500 years old or so. And, wouldn't you know it, a Buddha footprint. As a site, I have to say, it felt a bit underwhelming. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's very pretty and quite amazing to see, but I couldn't help but feel, is that all, when I'd seen it all? The views from the top are pretty stunning, looking out over the plain, but the site itself, I'm still glad I went there. Well, blow me a detailed summary of a place I visited. And yes, it's a rare example of my being underwhelmed. It's touted as being a site as large as, and to be a lotion version of, Angkor Wat. And even that may be pushing it, if we're being honest. But the difference is, Angkor Wat is more than just one temple. It's a whole huge region of archaeological and spiritual buildings and ruins, so there's a lot more to explore. This was just pretty much one stone framework in a field. A very large field. And if it were near a Paxa, then it would be absolutely sunny to see. But I'm not convinced that, for anyone but a completist, it's actually worth it to go all that way when places like Angkor and, to be honest, even Prasat Pravir exist. Of course, neither of them are in Laos. The journey back was uneventful. Had a shower at the hotel. Stifling heat. I don't know what the temperature was, but mid-thirties, I'd have said, at least. Then walked down the main, only, street of the town. It actually felt like a small English country village on a Sunday. There didn't seem to be anything going on and no one was really about. There were a couple of restaurants open, but even the staff didn't seem to be around. I eventually had something to eat in a restaurant attached to another guest house, and only went there because I saw people sitting outside it. It took a while to get served, because, well, no rush, and that's from me as well not pushing it, and by the time I left it was dark. The only people around were the ubiquitous motorbikes that seem to be in everywhere, but don't seem to be going anywhere in particular. No internet access, so an early night. Still haven't decided what I'm doing tomorrow, or even worked out which country I'll be in. It might depend what time I get up, but even with the fan roaring above me, it's still too hot to sleep yet. It's 8pm 8, 8, it's 8 as I was typing this. This, I don't know which country I'll be in tomorrow night, is the example I use when I describe my travel style on Travel Twitter. My pre-designated itineraries gave me three options for onward adventure based on mood and practicality. I could either stay in Laos and head south to Si Phan Don before hitting Cambodia, go west into Thailand, slowly make my way towards Cambodia, or keep going west and then southwest and reach Cambodia in a day. Three options, three different countries, no pre-bookings made. Which did I end up choosing? Well, you'll have to find out next time. So that's all for this part. Join me next time for part two of my retrospective adventure in Southeast Asia. Until then, don't trust the chilies. And if you're feeling off-colour, as you will if you trust the chilies, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. 
The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye for now.